Hi, I'm Gary from Stonyfield, the organic yogurt company, a proud supporter of Living on Earth. The President's Cancer Panel recommends eating foods produced without toxic, persistent pesticides and chemical fertilizers. We couldn't agree more, and that's why we make organic yogurt, because you can trust that harmful chemicals are never used in organic food production. From Public Radio International, it's Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. A new program to reduce the potent greenhouse pollutants, methane gas, and black carbon soot does a lot more than prevent planet warming. There will be some very substantial co-benefits in terms of air quality. We've estimated that the black carbon measures would uh, reduce the number of premature deaths by about 2 million every year if these measures were fully implemented globally. Also, astronomers discover a weird, wet world. As you dive deeper into this planet, the water takes on a very different form. You wouldn't have a liquid water ocean like on Earth. You might have solid, solid water, superfluid water. Frankly, I've had a lot of trouble kind of imagining what this planet is like. And sledding on thinning ice and the changing role of the sled dog. These stories and a lot more this week on Living on Earth. Hang on. Support for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation and Stonyfield Farm. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Somerville, Massachusetts, it's Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Kellerman. Carbon dioxide gets most of the attention when it comes to climate change, but scientists say as much as 40% of the increase in global temperature can be attributed to short-lived but powerful pollutants like methane and soot, or black carbon. Secretary of State Hillary Clinton recently announced a new multinational plan to implement simple strategies aimed at reducing these planet-warming pollutants. We know that in the principal effort necessary to reduce the effects of carbon dioxide, the world has not yet done enough. So when we discover effective and affordable ways to reduce global warming, not just a little but by a lot, It is a call to action for all of us. The U.N. will implement the new Six-Nation program. Johan Schillenschirner is coordinator of two U.N. reports on the benefits of reducing methane and soot. What we're trying to do here is um, look at ways by which we can reduce the amount of global warming over the next few decades by addressing these so-called short-lived climate pollutants. And if you were to take these measures and implement them, we can reduce climate warming by about half a degree C by mid-century. Half a degree C being half a degree Celsius? Yes. It doesn't sound like much. That's pretty significant. That is significant um, because at the moment we have a warming of an estimate of a 0.8 degree C above pre-industrial levels. So 0.5 degree C is, is significant and it would significantly reduce the rate of temperature increase over the next few decades, giving more of a chance for um, societies and ecosystems to adapt to new climate. So these things, uh, methane, soot, hydrofluorocarbons, they're short-lived. They stay in the atmosphere for a short period of time, but they're very potent in terms of global warming gases. That's right. And what's very interesting about the methane and the black carbon reductions is that there will be some very substantial co-benefits in terms of air quality. We've estimated that the black carbon measures would... Uh, reduce the number of premature deaths by about 2 million every year if these measures were fully implemented globally. So specifically, what are the measures you're taking to reduce these global warming gases? 
the measures we're looking at, they're divided into two categories. One are methane measures, and the other are black carbon or soot method measures. And um, the methane measures are really uh, related to capturing the methane when you extract oil or gas or coal, or if you transport the gas on long-distance pipelines, you know, making sure you don't have leakages and so forth. And the agriculture sector is trying to reduce the amount of methane from rice paddies and also by better handling of manure from cattle and pigs, for example, on farm and capturing the methane as well. In terms of the black carbon measures, uh, we have a, a large emission from the residential sector. One of the major sources in the world of black carbon is cooking indoors using fuel wood or other biomass. So the black carbon is emitted when you get incomplete burning of the wood. So you need to burn it more completely, which will also mean that you use less wood to, to do the cooking. And also in, there's an increasing amount of um, heating by wood in Europe and North America. And so it's a, a question of getting better technology, which both gives you the, the heat, but a low emission. So you've got the United States, Canada, Sweden, Mexico, Ghana, and Bangladesh. Kind of a, a strange collection of countries, if you ask me. Well, to some extent, the countries, several countries, have been focusing on this independently for a while. Some of the impacts of, of black carbon are particularly um, high in the Arctic. The black carbon, when it deposits on snow and ice, makes it darker and therefore absorbs more of the sun's heat and melting the snow and also heating the air above it. So there's some real benefits for the Arctic of reducing these emissions. So Sweden's very interested. Another reason why Canada's interested. And then countries like Ghana, the minister from Ghana said that, you know, this is a development issue. So, you know, people are coming at it from different angles and different reasons, but finding common ground and a desire to do something about it. So is your project an acknowledgement that... Um you know, our attempts to reduce CO2 emissions, which is the big, you know, greenhouse gases. Is that an emission that the climate summits just aren't working? Well, reducing carbon dioxide is very important, particularly for the long-term climate. Um, what we're talking about here is, is no alternative to CO2 emission, because these are measures which will help us in the near term, say in the next few decades, if we implement them, we'll get a benefit. But then the CO2 will kick in and, and we will have severe global warming if we don't do anything in the future. That's why these are complementary strategies. They're not alternatives. For the long term, you have to address CO2. Johann Schielenschöner is the director of the Stockholm Environment Institute Center at York and coordinator of two UN reports on the benefits of reducing methane and soot. Well, Mr. Schielenschöner, thanks so much. Yeah, well, thank you very much. And now for a trip to a very weird planet. If you blast off from Earth, head for the constellation the Serpent Bearer, and travel 40 years at the speed of light, you'll hit the planet GJ1214b. It's known as a super-Earth because of its size, nearly three times Earth's diameter. It weighs seven times as much and orbits a red dwarf star. But those are not the attributes that make GJ1214b unique. It turns out it's a totally new type of planet. Zachary Berta made the discovery along with a team of astronomers at the Harvard-Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics. We think that GJ1214b is a planet that has a lot of water in it. I mean a lot of water in it. So if the planet really is made out of a large part, fraction of water, you'd expect that its atmosphere would also have a lot of water on it. 
And so we went and measured that atmosphere with the Hubble Space Telescope. And we found that it looks like that atmosphere is made of, of a lot in a large fraction of water. So you have a watery planet. Yeah. But there are watery planets. I mean, we got three quarters of our planet is watery. That's not unique, is it? Three quarters of the surface of our planet is water. But only a tiny fraction of, the, of a percent of the mass of our planet overall is water. So GJ1214b? We're talking about something that would be a lot more watery. Um, so we, you could have thousands of kilometers of water on the surfaces of this planet if you could find a surface to it at all. Well, it's very close to this sun that it orbits, right? Yeah. So it would be very hot. Yeah, absolutely. And that's that's one of the really strange things about this is that because the temperature is so high, it wouldn't be water in any form that we would know it. You'd have steam on the outside. That's probably the, the closest point of comparison we have is the outer atmosphere of this planet is uh, probably about the, you know, it's the temperature of a hot oven. So it could be like where you would bake a baguette or something. This is steamy, roasty oven. We know that. But as you dive deeper into this planet, you start getting into much higher pressures. And so the water takes on a very different form. You wouldn't have a liquid water ocean like on Earth. You might have solid, solid water, but at very high temperatures, super fluid water, all of these very, um, very strange substances. I heard it described as hot ice. Yeah, so that would be one way to describe it. So what would it look like if I were to travel there? What would I see? I don't really know. Frankly, I've had a lot of trouble kind of imagining what this planet is like. Um, and part of that is because there still is a lot that we don't know about it. How do you know anything? You mentioned the Hubble mm-hmm. Space Telescope. Yep. So we watch the planet as it passes in front of its star, as seen from Earth. And a tiny fraction of the star's light will filter through the planet's atmosphere before getting to us. And so we can measure the color of that light that has traveled through the planet's atmosphere before getting to us. The analogy I like to make, and this is, I think, actually a pretty good one, is that imagine you're standing on this planet and watching sunset, this beautiful sunset. And it has some color to it. And you could imagine that if, if the atmosphere of that planet were different, that color could be very different, right? Uh-huh. But now imagine the light that passes over your shoulder, that doesn't come to your eyes, but passes over your shoulder and travels on through space for 40 years and then gets to our telescope. With the Hubble Space Telescope, we can kind of measure that sunset on that planet. It's almost romantic. Yeah, I think so. GJ1214b, where does the romantic name come from? It's a beautiful name. So in astronomy, we have a tradition of naming bodies that orbit other bodies after them. The star has the number GJ1214. And so if you find something orbiting GJ1214, you have to call it GJ1214b. So you couldn't name it something like Big Berta? No. Um, First, there would be, uh, actually, my advisor's uh, (laughs) wife is first in line for the planet names. But it's it's a problem that, that we have that I think at some point, uh, there are going to be a few of these planets that are so interesting to us that we really do want to give them interesting names that, you know, make them easier to remember. Now, would you be surprised if it turns out it's not this weird water world, but, you know, blue cheese or styrofoam? I wouldn't be that surprised. <laughs> <laughs> well, I would I would be a little surprised if it were blue cheese. There's still so much we don't know about many of these planets. And so a lot of of the conclusions that we draw about them are based on our modeling and our understanding of the physics going on in these planets. And a lot of what we say right now is guided by what we know about the universe as a whole, in particular what we know about the abundance of various elements in the universe. And that's something that's fairly well constrained. So it gives us a good starting point to predict what planets would be like. 
The Hubble has really been a tremendous tool to astronomers. Oh, absolutely. It's been up there for, well, since 1990, am I right? Yeah. But it's supposed to be shut off at um, about two years. Well, so I think Hubble's going to keep going until as long as it can. With the end of the shuttle program, there'll be no more repair missions, which is something that's made Hubble so useful, is that you can keep upgrading it as the years go by. So without the shuttle, at some point, sadly, the cameras will stop working and things will sort of fade away on Hubble. Are there plans for a post-Hubble telescope? Yeah, and so that's something that we're all really excited about. Uh, This is a telescope called the James Webb Space Telescope, which is like Hubble, but bigger and better. And it's going to be far far away from Earth, and it's observing largely in at infrared wavelengths, which is great because it allows you to see back to the beginning of the universe. There's all this incredible astronomy you can do with it. The thing that I'm most excited about with it is that you can study the atmospheres of planets, and specifically study the atmospheres of planets that are not necessarily these weird things like GJ1214b, but planets that could be a little bit cooler and a little bit smaller and could conceivably be host to life. What's interesting about science in general, and uh, and astronomy in particular, is that the more you learn, the weirder it gets. The thing that makes me really excited about, I guess as you say, the the more we learn, the weirder it gets, is that we're at this really interesting place right now where we only just now have the technology to find planets like these and to observe planets like these and to study their atmospheres, to really start this exploration of what's out there. It makes me really excited to think about what surprises are around the corner. Well, Zachary Berta, thank you so much for coming in. You're welcome. My pleasure. Zachary Berta is a grad student astronomer at the Harvard-Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics. Just ahead, one more reason why you shouldn't mess with Texas. Keep listening to Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. Being a chef isn't easy. The competition is intense. The time has come to once again answer life's most savory question. Whose cuisine reigns supreme? This is Iron Chef America. Cooking what's trendy is one way chefs can get an edge on the competition. And these days, sustainability is on the cutting edge. Living on Earth's Jessica Lise Kern found that in some kitchens, chefs in training are learning how to keep up with the green gastronomic Joneses. Next thing after that, give me the cold beef salad and the arugula salad, okay? And just give me one cheese plate. This could sound like another cooking competition, but Dwayne LaPuma's not a TV star, and there are no cameras in his kitchen. He's the head chef at St. Andrew's Cafe in Hyde Park, New York, and this restaurant is committed to using local seasonal foods. We change the menu every season, but then we knit and pick. Like, all of a sudden, we can't get any more butternuts. Now we switch to pumpkin, you know, or turnips, squashes, uh, beets. He says being flexible is key, since farmers are at the mercy of the weather and Mother Nature can be unpredictable. There have been many times when I'm waiting for the ducks and because of rain or whatever, you have to change your menu. So it is very challenging as a chef to stay in seasonal and to do farm-to-table, and that's also what makes it fun. St. Andrews is not only a farm-to-table restaurant, it's also a classroom at the Culinary Institute of America. Here, students serve as waitstaff, pastry, and sous chefs. This working classroom gets produce from 30 farmers in the surrounding Hudson Valley. And there's a lot of it. 20,000 pounds of Granny Smith apples, 98,000 pounds of yellow onions, and 780,000 eggs. 
Chef Lapuma says eating seasonal foods may be a fad at the moment, but it's also satisfying. You can't tell me after you went skiing and you're ice cold that you want to come in and have a slice of watermelon. You know, you want that polenta. You want that stew. And in the summertime, vice versa. You're not out walking in the heat and coming in and saying, oh, give me goulash. You know, you're going to say, let me have that peach. Let me have that watermelon salad or whatever it happens to be. And taking advantage of seasonality gives La Puma the chance to spice up the sameness of winter foods. We do buy things at the height of their freshness and peaks, like ramps, tomatoes, peaches, and we do like a major canning that day. We might buy like 300 pounds of peaches, and then in the wintertime, we might run like pork chops with spicy peach chutney. St. Andrew's Cafe is a unique classroom setting, but teaching extends beyond the restaurant kitchen to the Institute's regular classrooms, where students in white toques, the signature chef's marshmallow hat, scribble kitchen conversions on chalkboards, and study the rigors of basic French cuisine. Sophomore Rebecca Hebe. We've really started to focus on how to be sustainable as a chef and how to focus on where we would procure our food. And we were talking about it today in lecture about how when you buy local and you buy in season, it ends up actually saving you more money in the long run. Professors also focus on how to keep an eco-conscious kitchen from recycling used cooking oil to composting food scraps. The compost that we actually generate here is taken to local farms. And even though I have no culinary use for it, I know that it really is turning into a culinary value for me in the future by, you know, regenerating into the earth. The wintry grounds of the Culinary Institute are dotted with pines, maples, and barren garden beds. In warmer months, these plots are filled with vegetables and herbs. My name is Andra Shramik, and I'm the supervisor of grounds, recycling, and horticulture. When Shramik arrived at the Culinary Institute, the grounds were covered with rhododendrons, ferns, and other ornamental plants. Slowly, she's been ripping them out to create an edible landscape. This is mostly celery, but we had some parsley in here, and we've got Swiss chard, and so now we've got string beans and a pumpkin that's being eaten by a woodchuck. Um, we had, <laughs> before the woodchuck ate them, beautiful okra that were this big. It was just, like, amazing. And this, the students, you know, so many of them are like, what is that? Or they see the Brussels sprouts, and they're like, what is that? And it's like, it's Brussels sprouts, you know, and that's okra growing. And so it's this whole education thing going on also with the students. They're encouraged to pick and pluck from the garden for their hyper-local meals. And then you see the students come out with their big toques on and their jackets, and they've got their little snippers and their scissors, and it's like they're just like dumbfounded that here they are in their kitchen, and they walk out here, and literally one minute later they have this incredibly fresh parsley that they know came from here, didn't come from California or Florida, and they're using it. Teaching how and where food is grown in culinary schools is relatively new. It's a trend following on the heels of what's in vogue in professional kitchens. In the National Restaurant Association's What's Hot in 2012 survey, local sourcing, sustainability, and kitchen gardens all came out on top. Melissa Kogut is the executive director of the Chef's Collaborative, a national network that focuses on culinary sustainability. She says schools are just starting to add courses to teach this philosophy. Historically, in the last few years, it's sort of been left up to individual instructors to add it into their curriculum. But what we're starting to see now is that the administration is uh, making decisions to put it into the curriculum. 
Kogut says culinary schools from Seattle to Providence are following this trend. At Johnson and Wales, they've actually added a sustainability track where students can take a number of courses addressing nutrition and sustainability. And my thinking is that this is coming from the students who are applying. They want to have this kind of training. But since it's a relatively new trend in culinary schools, Kogut says the chefs who have been cooking this way taught themselves. They come at it first from the quality of the ingredients, and they realize that the ingredients taste better when they're local. That's sort of the first step. And then they tend to get into all of the environmental reasons why sustainability is good. These chefs have been on the front lines spearheading a change, including growing their own food on rooftops and in backyard gardens. The students at the Culinary Institute of America also get a hands-on lesson in the student garden. Junior Edward Kopp. Part of it is the educational process of having the opportunity to put your hands in the dirt and see that food takes time. The long wait from seed to plate gives Kopp and other Culinary Institute students an appreciation for the journey that food takes. There is some farmer somewhere who is putting time, effort, and care into delivering you know, the best product possible for me to then deliver to the public as, as great food. So Kopp and his classmates will leave the Culinary Institute of America not just with the skills to make canapes and cassoulets, but also armed with a special understanding. There is one more ingredient to this battle, our secret ingredient. The theme on which our chefs will offer their succulent variations. Today's secret ingredient is... Sustainable food. The secret ingredient that keeps them on the culinary cutting edge. For Living on Earth, I'm Jessica Elise Kern in Hyde Park, New York. So now, America, with an open heart and an empty stomach, I say unto you in the words of my uncle... The scene is mid-February, on the steps of the Lamar County Courthouse in Paris, Texas. Protesting against the proposed Keystone XL pipeline was an unlikely coalition of environmental groups and Tea Party libertarian types. The company TransCanada wants to build the pipeline to carry crude oil from the tar sands of Alberta, 1,700 miles to refineries on the Gulf Coast. President Obama put construction on indefinite hold pending an environmental review, but inside the Lamar courthouse, lawyers for Texas landowners were fighting to prevent TransCanada from taking their property for the pipeline by eminent domain. The practice is permitted by the U.S. Constitution, but the Texas judge handed landowners a temporary injunction halting construction. It's just one of several similar lawsuits in the Lone Star State, Leading the charge against the taking of private property by a private company is Deborah Medina. She's a former Republican candidate for governor and head of the property rights group We Texans. Also joining me from Sacramento, California, is David Bremer, an eminent domain attorney with the Pacific Legal Foundation. Hi, Deborah. Good to be with you, Bruce. And David Bremer, welcome to Living on Earth, too. Thank you. Let's start with you, Deborah. You're against the pipeline. Why? I'm against the use of eminent domain for private business. What do you mean? The law is very clear that those pipelines must serve a public purpose. So what happens in practice is these pipelines 
cloak themselves in that regalia, then they like to do that because then they have the power of eminent domain and they can just take the property that they deem they need for their business. And we believe that's exactly what's happening here. And uh, there's a bit of controversy over that. Well, Dave Bremer, you're an expert in eminent domain issues. Uh, Help us out. Ultimately, it comes down to the question of whether the project is serving a public use, really providing a public benefit rather than simply a private one. This specific question about TransCanada, it's it's a very hard question. It looks in a lot of ways like other things that have always been allowed as public uses, specifically like utility, cable companies, power companies. There's easements all over the place with these things buried underground that were taken by eminent domain. But this case is strange, in my opinion, because the pipeline hasn't even been approved and they're going around taking people's property. And I think that gives it a whole new gloss where it something doesn't smell right. I think that that's one of the things that's been most um, eye-opening for the landowners, if you will. I think many of them suspected that once the presidential permit was denied, that the eminent domain takings would cease. So we've got a recent Supreme Court case from August of last year, the Denbury Green Pipeline case, where the Supreme Court found for the landowner saying that the pipeline company that had exercised eminent domain was in fact a private business not serving the public interest and therefore should not have had the ability to use eminent domain to take property. We're anxious to see that similar question raised in the TransCanada Keystone XL case. Unfortunately, you've got a multi-billion dollar pipeline company that has a very sophisticated legal team and very difficult for landowners to amass the resources to get themselves into court to fight that fight. So the question is one of public use. I'm reading something from the president of the Greater Port Arthur Chamber of Commerce. And Port Arthur is where two of the refineries that this oil would be used on the Gulf Coast. And he says this, There is not a politician in Texas in their right mind, I don't care if you're a Democrat or Republican, that doesn't know the importance of this to all of Texas. I I mean, I I looked at some of the economic breakdowns. They're talking about $2 billion of economic value in terms of jobs. Uh, So isn't that, you know, a public good? Uh, Well, I would say that there's a very good chance it would be seen that way by a court. Um, Those are all good things, and we are in favor of that type of development. So, again, the standard is very loose. The public use standard is very loose. However, as far as I know, it has never permitted a government or a private company to condemn land for a project which may never actually be approved. Lost in all this is the fact that owners have to be fully and justly compensated, even if it is a public use. There's got to be full just compensation. And a lot of times what happens in these types of cases is the property owners are low-balled. They get told they're going to get compensated, but they get offered a very, very low price. So, Deborah Medina, is this just a negotiating strategy to get a better price? We haven't heard that. Most of the objections that we're hearing are involving the terms of the contract rather than the price. The landowners are being told, for example, that they can't move heavy equipment over the top of the easement. Once the pipeline is buried, they can't drive a tractor. They can't drive anything heavier than a four-wheeler over the top of that buried pipeline. 
one particular property says, I'm a timber company. I've cut and harvest timber off of this property, and we've had a drought in Texas. We've had forest fires here. If there's a fire, I need to be able to move bulldozers and fire trucks, and I can't be prohibited from doing that. It's not. It wouldn't be safe. The company said, well, we won't allow that. And the gentleman said, well, then you're going to have to go around my property. And they said, no, we won't. We'll condemn it. And they have. They've condemned his property. They're going through his property. And they'd like the terms to be that he can't drive anything over the top of that pipeline. Are there other environmental concerns that you might have there, Deborah? I think from landowners, we're hearing a number of those sorts of concerns. Uh, One gentleman has 66 100-year-old trees that are going to be removed from his property in order to clear a path. And safety concerns, people want to know about possible water contamination, Uh, The company has had some leaks on the Keystone One, and there are concerns about that. So landowners come to the table of this negotiation with varied concerns. And unfortunately, many of those landowners have met with an obstinance from this company and an unwillingness to address those concerns. And so you have 89, at least 89, eminent domain cases here in Texas that we've been able to document to date. We have to remember, eminent domain is an extraordinary power. It's always disruptive. And most people's primary concern at first is not money. Their primary concern is keeping the use of their property and the enjoyment of their property. That is how it's always been. When you look at the railroads that uh, were given the power of eminent domain in the 19th century to put rails across the United States, the, the, the same concerns came up there, too. Deborah, is this a case of very strange political bedfellows? The Tea Party has come out against this pipeline on the property issues in the eminent domain. Um, So have libertarians, uh, but so have environmentalists. It is an interesting coalition. We are all coming, I think, to the table on this issue with some different concerns, but we see overlap and common concern here is the behavior by this company, the way it's treating Texans, whether it's Texans who have environmental concerns or private property concerns. And so it's drawing those folks together to say, we don't like the way you're doing business here in our state or attempting to do business here in our state. And they're going to meet some resistance until either their behavior changes or they are able to address the concerns that Texans are raising. So, David, when all is said and done in this case, what do you think is going to happen? I think it's a close call. The law is not on the side of property owners right now, unfortunately, in this area. Um, So if the project is approved, it's probably a public use under current law. If it's not approved, that's a a strange situation. Deborah, I'll give you the last word if you'd like. Don't mess with Texas, Bruce. Deborah Medina is director of We Texans. It's a public policy advocacy group in Wharton, Texas and Austin. Deborah, thank you. Thank you, Bruce. And Dave Bremer is a property rights and an eminent domain attorney with the Pacific Legal Foundation in Sacramento, California. David, thank you. Thank you, Bruce. We received a written response from TransCanada. The pipeline company says the temporary restraining order is without merit and the eminent domain process permits them to use the land in Texas. Quote, our commitment is to treat landowners with honesty, fairness and respect to work with them and come up with the best possible solution.
Coming up, Captain Henry Hudson had it hard, his crew mutinied, and he was cast adrift. Today, Arctic explorers have it easier, but not by much. Stay tuned to Living on Earth. Support for Living on Earth comes from the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting strategic communications and collaboration in solving the world's most pressing environmental problems. The Gordon and Betty Moore Foundation and Gilman Ordway for coverage of conservation and environmental change. This is Living on Earth on PRI, Public Radio International. It's Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. Doe's a deer that works well in a song, but does don't make much sound. On the other hand, goats do. Goat kids get vocal right after birth, and it turns out they quickly pick up accents. Give a listen. Here's one kid. And here's another. Can you hear the different accents? Well, Dr. Elodie Briefer can. She's a biologist at the University of London, and she discovered that pygmy goats, like humans, bats, and whales, are among the elite group of mammals that can adapt vocal sounds in response to the environment. Well, actually, I wasn't expecting that at all, and because people don't think that um, species such as goats have uh, flexible vocalizations and that they can uh, adjust their vocalizations to their social environments. So in my study, I, I recorded them when they were one week old and then five weeks old, and their calls became a lot more similar during those four weeks. So goats have different accents. Yeah, I found out that um, when goat kids were raised in the same group, they actually uh, started to uh, kind of copy each other and develop similar vocalizations. So their vocalization changed with time, just like us humans. So I'm from Brooklyn, New York, and you're from... Yeah, I'm originally from Switzerland, yeah. Ah, So we can both speak English, understand each other, but different accents. Exactly, yeah. Now, you've listened to these kids bleeding hundreds of times, right? Yeah. (laughs) Can you tell the difference just by listening? Yeah, Yeah, actually, if you hear a goat calls from the same group and then from different um, groups, you might be able to hear the difference, even you. Okay, well, we've got some goat calls. Let's play the group one here. Mm -hmm. Let's hear that one again. So let's play a goat from a different group. Even I can tell the difference there. So, yeah, um, the pitch of the the call is a little higher in this second group. Group one. (laughs) Group two. Now, why would they be different? I think that this group effect on the vocalizations is like an indicator of the group. So the goats are really social animals, and it will allow them to differentiate who's from their group and who's from another group, and um, will increase group cohesion. So the the function is to increase group cohesion, and and why would that be? They need to keep together in a group, and uh, goats have really complex social structure. Actually, they they are in a really big group during the night, and then they split up in small groups during the day. And in the morning, for example, they would need to know who are the members of their group. So if we had a herd of zebras or, you know, a pack of wolves, they're social animals, would you expect that they would have different accents too? Yeah, well, my results were quite surprising because um, the main uh, general idea was that in mammals such as goats, there is no effect of the environment on vocalizations. And um, because I found that on goats, I'm pretty sure that it exists in uh, lots of other mammals. So I have to ask you, Dr. Briefer, when you tell somebody that you study goat calls, what's their first impression? 
Um, they kind of, well, they find that quite funny, of course. <laughs> well, most people don't really see why it could be so important to study uh, God calls, but I think it's really important because it shows us how did we evolve. Especially these, these accents I found on God kids show us the basis of the huge vocal flexibility that we have in humans. It shows us that even some animals like goats also have uh, flexible vocalizations and they can also learn from each other and develop accents. Could it even be more complex? Could it not just be just a signaling or an emotive expression, but actually communicating ideas? Well, we, we never know, yeah. We are only, I think, at the beginning of research in this area, and there are lots of things that we still need to um, discover. And, for example, we know that some animals have different alarm calls for different uh, predators. They actually give information about what kind of predator is around, and that's quite uh, impressive. Well, Dr. Briefer, thank you so very much. Yeah, no problem. Dr. Elodi Briefer is a biologist at the University of London. 400 years ago, explorer Henry Hudson set sail from England in search of an Arctic route to the riches of Asia. It was an ill-fated journey that ended in disaster for Captain Hudson and his son, and they never did discover the fabled Northwest Passage. Even today, despite satellite maps and GPS, much of that same region in northern Canada remains an unexplored mystery. But still, there are those who dare to venture and challenge the unforgiving place, just as Henry Hudson did four centuries ago. Emily Corwin of Mind Open Media has their story. My name is Lawrence Millman, and I'm an Arctic explorer. And I have an abiding interest in other Arctic explorers who disappeared off the face of the earth. On a modern-day expedition to the Hudson Bay, Larry Millman overheard an unusual story about the first white man to live among that region's native Cree. The story had been passed down among the Cree for generations, and the white man was known as Firebeard. With very little research, I determined that in all probability, Firebeard was Henry Hudson, who was perhaps the best recognized navigator of the day. There are only a few things we know about Henry Hudson's personal life. Here's one of the things we know about Henry Hudson, that he had a great affection for bangles, like jewelry. And males wore in those days lots of jewelry, like bracelets. He liked golden wristbands and, and rings. We know that. And there's one source that mentioned that he really enjoyed big meals. Back in the early 1600s, navigators were tired of sailing down around South America, all the way across the Pacific to Asia. So a British trading company hired Henry Hudson to find a shorter route. Well, he sets out from England in 1610, touches Iceland, gets some supplies, and heads into the furious overfall, otherwise known as Hudson Strait. They thought, because of all these heavy currents, that it was close to the Pacific. It had to be a great ocean. No, it wasn't a great ocean. It was a long, narrow strait. This so-called furious overfall, with its counterclockwise swirling chunks of ice, was much, much colder than the guys on Hudson's crew ever expected. Pretty soon, their ship got stuck. It was mired in the ice. There's a feeling of complete and utter paralysis you might like to go somewhere, but you can't go anywhere. You can't 
get your boat to move a bloody inch. Hudson's crew wanted to turn around. They said, As soon as we get out of this ice, Captain Hudson, we're heading home. There was an interesting democracy among crews of that day. If the crew wanted to head home and the captain didn't, the crew got their way. He said, well, look, he brought out a map, showed his crew the map. He said, we're 100 miles farther west than any other known expedition, and you want to turn around. Well, they couldn't turn around, and he was using that possibly as part of his ammunition. We stand now on the edge of discovery. This great bay must open somewhere and yield the passage. Let us thrust westward in the common triumph of raising the Indies. That's from the 1964 film The Last Voyage of Henry Hudson. Come November, it was too cold and icy to go on. Hudson and his crew would spend the winter camped on the shore of the frigid James Bay. It was just an absolute miracle that they survived the winter. The crew was starving, and it was freezing cold. Scurvy made their gums bleed and their teeth loose. When the ship could finally sail again, Hudson told his crew they would return to England. But there was a problem. Hudson wasn't going in the right direction for England. He was heading west, and he should have been heading north, up along the coast and out the same way they came in. And when one of the members of the crew noticed that certain individuals had cheese and had more food than they themselves had, that was the spark that inspired the mutiny. Now that you are free of us, Master Hudson, you may sail westward for all you are worth. (laughs) Mr. Green, it is not too late. Reconsider. The crew threw Hudson and his son on a sailboat and headed right back to England. Did Hudson go by Firebeard and live among the Cree? Or did he freeze to death, alone in the bay? We don't know. 400 years later, another adventurous Arctic explorer wanted her turn. The legend of Henry Hudson loomed. Every time I brought up Hudson Strait, everybody just shook their head. It had this reputation for being a really tough place where to work. That's Fiamma Stranio. She's an ocean scientist at the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution. Three years in a row, Stranio has returned to the same place where Henry Hudson disappeared. She's not looking for riches or spices or any of that. And none of her crews have ever threatened mutiny. See, Stranio is on a new kind of mission. She wants to understand climate change in the Arctic. So if, if we think of Hudson Bay and Hudson Strait as a small microcosm in the climate system, then if I can understand how they work, if I know what goes in and I know what comes out, then I can put this in a bigger model that has the entire planet, the entire atmosphere, and it's going to help us predict future change. As the planet heats up, moisture evaporates from warm places like the tropics. And then wind pulls that moist air over the Arctic, where it rains and snows into the ocean. That fresh water is lighter than the salt water, so it sits like a blanket on top of the entire ocean, getting in the way of the ocean's usual temperature regulation and circulation patterns. Stranio is monitoring the water in the Hudson Strait, a bottleneck that connects the Hudson Bay to the Atlantic Ocean. 
This is the strait that Henry Hudson may have called the Furious Overfall, with its massive 30-foot tides and swirling currents. When you're close to land, you just see the entire landscape change. You know, your, your ship just goes up and down, and you look and you thought, oh, there was an island there. Well, it's gone. Because there are these super strong tides, the everything that you see are these really fast currents which switch every six hours or so. And um, there's so much mixing and turbulence that the water literally boils. Here is Stranio in the same treacherous strait that brought about Henry Hudson's demise 400 years ago. And so if you read the old books and the old maps, Hudson Strait is actually indicated with a waterfall. Like uh, the currents were so strong that ships had a really hard time navigating it. There are a couple of maps that actually show Hudson Bay long before any European went there. Here be dragons, here be monsters, or you fall off the edge at this point. The legends of monsters that tormented Henry Hudson's crew boded ill for Stranio's expedition. Yet Stranio forged ahead. For her research, she puts three chains of instruments down into the water. These chains, called moorings, are so big they have to be lowered in with a crane. What looks like a massive red fishing bobber sits at the top while the instruments sink down, measuring water salinity, velocity, and temperature. I think the most exciting moment was um, putting everything in the water the first time. Just seeing everything disappear, it feels silly because that's it. You've just chucked thousands of, hundreds of thousands of dollars in the water. Don't know what they're doing. But just uh, putting everything in and know that if everything goes as planned, you're going to come back and there'll be data. And there's something magical about uh, letting go of all the instruments and just sort of walking away and trusting. Stranio's reward for taking on this challenge is getting to be the first. One of the reasons to work in the Arctic is that uh, it's an incredibly important place in the circulation of the ocean and the climate system, and yet we know so little about it. And so you can go to so many places in the Arctic and be the first person ever making measurements there. And so when you pull up this instrument that's been in the water for an hour or for a year, and you look at these data, uh, you think, wow, nobody's ever seen what goes on under the surface of the ocean here. You're sort of hearing a story for the first time. Kind of like when Larry Millman heard the story of Firebeard for the first time. For Millman, being in a place like the Hudson Bay gave him something else, too. A new kind of sensory experience. When you're in a place that you know each wrong step will land you in, if not trouble, deep doo-doo, um, bear, caribou, or otherwise, then you're aware of the world around you. So I enjoy this, uh, the fact that all my senses are on the alert when I'm traveling in the Arctic. Larry Millman left the Arctic with a new kind of awareness and a story about Henry Hudson. Henry Hudson's mutinous crew left Henry in the middle of the Hudson Strait. And Stranio left the Hudson Strait with the data she needed to build a predictive model of climate change in the Arctic. All of them did something that had never been done before, in a place no one, except perhaps the native Cree, was meant to survive. For Living on Earth, I'm Emily Corwin. I have traveled. Far from home. 
Our story about Arctic explorers comes to us from Mind Open Media. It works with researchers to tell stories about their science and their lives. To learn more, head to our website, LOE.org. Back into my baby's arms, say from this world of woe. Long before there were snowmobiles and airplanes, sled dogs were one of the main methods of transportation in the Arctic regions of the world. Dogs mushing over frozen ground are still very much in evidence today, but as writer Mark Seth Lender found out, the job, and even the dog itself, has changed. A thousand years of dogs running pressure ridge and ice ridge, skirting every crevice, loping frozen tundra through permanent day and the long months of near dark. They are a special breed. Their sense of snow, their sense of smell, long hours without shelter and wind that freezes human flesh, solid as a wall of ice, and the dogs did not lie down, not once. Forward, panting, steady on broad feet, on short legs made to endure, sure-footed as magnetic north. Behind the loaded sled, following, Inuit come. Drawn toward the lodestone of Viking iron, offered in trade for meat, for fat, for furs. And sled dogs led them on that journey, every inch, and by heart and will and sinew allowed Inuit to stay. Now this canine continental drift is done, what will become of Arctic in a civilized imagination? As the Arctic melts away, the Inuit dog remains. Bred now for speed, racing the leads that crack the ice shelf like liquid lightning, across bare snow in a blizzard minus forty below, their job is not to carry, but to win and keep alive at least the sound, that deep-throated growl, the barking howl of the team. In dappled winter dark, light echo of a sunrise that never seems to come, what Arctic dreams do Inuit elders dream? Mark Seth Linder is a regular contributor to Living on Earth. To see some of Mark's sled dog photos from Hudson Bay, Go to our website, LOE.org. Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Bobby Bascom, Eileen Belinsky, Ingrid Lobet, Helen Palmer, and Ike Shreeskandaraja. With help from Sarah Calkins, Megan Minor, Gabriella Romano, and Sammy Souza. Our interns are Mary Bates and Sophie Golden. Jeff Turton is our technical director. Allison Lurge-Dean composed our themes. You can find us anytime at LOE.org. And while you're online, check out our sister program, Planet Harmony. Planet Harmony welcomes all and pays special attention to stories affecting communities of color. Log on and join the discussion at MyPlanetHarmony.com. And don't forget to check out the Living on Earth Facebook page. It's PRI's Living on Earth. And you can follow us on Twitter at Living on Earth. That's just one word. Steve Kerwood is our executive producer. I'm Bruce Gellerman. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation, supporting coverage of emerging science. And Stonyfield Farm, organic yogurt and smoothies. Stonyfield invites you to just eat organic for a day. Details at justeatorganic.com. Support also comes from you, our listeners. 
the Go Forward Fund, and PaxWorld Mutual and Exchange Traded Funds, integrating environmental, social, and governance factors into investment analysis and decision making. On the web at PaxWorld.com. PaxWorld for tomorrow. PRI Public Radio International.